Hello! <laughs> Hello! Hello everybody! Welcome back! So, today uh, we have a very, very special topic of conversation, which is... Super intelligence! Super intelligence! Well, I'm not gonna be covering this book. This, go this book is very good. I recommend it. It's fascinating. It's uh, uh, what I could imagine uh, somebody describing as cutting edge for its time. And uh, brilliant book. Fascinating. Nick Bostrom is a genius. <laughs> I highly recommend it. But <laughs> I think all of the way in which him and people, you know, surrounding and kind of like transhumanist and uh, effective altruist rationalist community, etc. Oh, intelligence researchers. And uh, anyway, like there is a critical aspect of intelligence that is being completely and utterly uh, neglected. So essentially today I'm going to build up to that. And actually I think uh, for the sake of my credibility I will actually have to in a sense provide a lot of substantial material to explain kind of the standard case for kind of like classical conceptions of intelligence so that then we can do the jump and get to the kind of Qualia computing paradigm of what intelligence is and what it tells us about super intelligence. So, <laughs> but before, um, the quality of the day is cuteness. So, some of you may have seen this, uh, this, these characters. Uh, so, cuteness, cuteness. Okay, so there's, a, there's an evolutionary reason for cuteness, um, which is, you know, hypothesized that cute babies um, are, in a way, um, manipulating you to take care of them. It's kind of like, oh, this feeling of... Uh, helplessness and you know the hedonic tone that comes with uh, cuteness is something you want to cherish and, and preserve and protect and uh, in that sense yeah it's kind of like a, a weird evolutionary trick um, I will say though that cuteness in and of itself I would describe as a qualia and it, uh, it um, I would associate it with a softness and safety and um, actually smooth the geometry as well um, and all of that is, yeah, very beautiful, amazing. Unfortunately, in our Darwinian world, cuteness has been co-opted for a lot of other purposes. In particular, I would say that it seems to be associated with uh, three kind of like dark or ugly sides, <laughs> which are, I mean, first of all, uh, controllability. I mean, as I was saying, like babies might be manipulating you uh, to take care of them. But likewise, you know, um, the perception of something being cute also, uh, in a sense, like as a, a, an internal flag or indicator that they are not fully, you know, intelligent and aware of their surroundings. So they're like easy to manipulate, which is, yeah, kind of terrible and perverse in a way. So um, I definitely want to avoid that. Uh, but then also, I would say, is related to intelligence. You know, cuteness, all else being equal, kind of like suggests lack of intelligence. Why? Because... Yeah, again, the issue of uh, kind of like controllability, like something that is extremely cute is harmless. And it's very difficult to have something that is really intelligent <laughs> without it having some degree of, you know, harm potential. So <laughs> um, from the point of view of kind of like, you know, post-human uh, recruiting of qualia for, you know, enriching our world simulations, making them beautiful, I would say, yes, let's uh, recruit cuteness qualia. But make sure that, you know, they're not tied to kind of like signaling low intelligence or any kind of like manipulation or manipulability. 
Uh, and also, I guess, like, finally, that they don't lure you into a, a, a fake reality. So there's this pretty terrible way of seeing the world in which we are, which is uh, kind of analogous to the, the movie The Cube. Okay, so this might be kind of a, a Buddhist perspective on, on reality or samsara, right? It's like in The Cube, you, you wake up, you don't know where you are or why you're there, but you're kind of in this weird cubicle and uh, essentially if uh, and there's the doors at each of the uh, sites and you can enter you know through one of those doors and you arrive at another cube exactly the same dimensions slightly different color and in a certain percentage of those cubes uh, essentially there's like death traps and you die horribly and uh, there is some probability of being able to escape the macro structure but only if you learn to find the patterns that lead through you know safe safe pathways and um uh, and you need like a lot of persistence, you need cooperation, collaboration, um, you need kind of like mindfulness, you need, in a sense, to, to really take escaping seriously. Um, because otherwise you have really just two options, either you stay where you are, and you die in a boring way, like thirst, <laughs> or asphyxiation, or hunger, or you try to escape and you die in a horrible way. So yeah, that's kind of similar to Samsara. It's kind of similar to uh, our, our existence, unfortunately. And uh, I would say, yeah, there's uh, right now, to a first approximation, two ways out, as it were. One is kind of like the defabrication path of, uh, uh, you know, kind of like Buddhist practices where, yeah, I mean, essentially you aimed for kind of like fourth path and uh, nirvana and kind of like unconditioned existence, which according to, you know, people I, I know who actually have, you know, are there in that state, uh, they say it's just constant, amazing well-being, you know, well-being higher than candy flipping even even higher than the, the jhanas, which are these highly concentrated states of consciousness. And, uh, and it's just like permanent, and they're just there. Now, there is a caveat though, <laughs> we know from Daniel Ingram, that uh, even though, you know, he's an extremely attained meditator, he nonetheless experienced tremendous suffering when he has kidney stones. Because kidney stones are just so painful that even if you are a awakened being, as it were, uh, yeah, the pain is just too fast. It just gets there before your kind of mindfulness and awakening and equanimity capacities are able to deal with it, cancel it or dissipate its stress or whatever it may be. It's just too much, just too much. So in a sense, it's not a complete, you know, complete solution. To a second, you know, the second path, which I also think is uh, very promising and ideally would work in synergy with the first one, is, uh, yeah, essentially finding the bio chemical substrate of bliss and suffering and essentially uh, engineering ourselves such that by default we are always at least in a positive state of consciousness of course we could be animated by information sensitive gradients of bliss as david pierce talks about um, but it would be only in the positive hedonic range and i think actually that is doable there are a lot of fascinating examples of people who are kind of there already for whatever like you know genetic lottery luck they they, they may have one of them is uh, joe cameron a 70 year old uh, vegan school teacher who claims to yeah just have never really suffered in her life and she's you know perfectly normal very empathetic person um she understands that suffering is terrible she doesn't have to suffer to understand that she even said that childbirth felt like a tickle and by analyzing her genome it was discovered that, you know, the one thing that is really weird about it is that her FAAH gene 
has a mutation. And that gene encodes for the uh, enzymes that break down this neurotransmitter called anandamide, which is related to the cannabinoid system. And to some extent, yes, to kind of like pain relief. So anyway, uh, that's how you might be able to escape the cube. And yes, right now there's a lot of very cute characters in the cube, but because of the interconnectedness of everything, my friends, this is connected to kidney stones. I'm afraid. So don't be lured by Mara into this, this universe if you can help it. Let's, uh, let's solve the problem of suffering. Don't be lured by cuteness. Okay, so now on to the topic of the day, uh, which is super intelligence. So I'm going to build up to it. Okay, so first of all, what is the evolutionary reason for why humans are quote unquote generally intelligent? And there's like a number of stories. Okay, there's a lot of stories here. I think, uh, you know, kind of like the final answer hasn't been, you know, identified. But I'm just going to mention four kind of like interesting theories. Um, one is, you know, that there was some kind of like evolutionary selection pressure for tool making capacity, the capacity to make tools and to invent tools. However, this theory has been widely criticized for a number of reasons, which is, you know, primarily that it's a lot harder to invent a tool than to copy it. And once it has been invented, uh, in a sense, the genetic advantage for having invented it is like really minimal because it will just be for one person. And like most of the value, you know, most of the genetic advantage would actually come from people who are copying it. So in that sense, we may not actually be evolved for like innovation in that sense. We may be more evolved for mimesis, <laughs> copying other people's, yeah, essentially like discoveries because it's just, yeah, easier, more evolutionarily advantageous. We're more tuned to that. The second one is uh, the evolution of language. And, you know, you read Richard Dawkins and uh, evolutionary biologists and yeah, they will say that uh, strictly speaking, language, you, you, you really should think about it as kind of like a, a tool of manipulation, you know, for it to uh, be evolutionarily advantageous, it has to, in a sense, be kind of derived from organisms that make sounds and make, you know, send signals that are in some sense reshaping the environment in such a way that, you know, the genes that gave rise to those, you know, emission of signals increase the probability of the reproduction. So strictly speaking, from a purely causal point of view, <laughs> all communication and no language would be considered kind of manipulation, manipulation of the environment. It just so happens that, you know, it's also the case that cooperation is evolutionarily advantageous and developing kind of common languages, inhabiting those languages and so on is also, also advantageous. So yes, you know, the bottom line at the causal level might be manipulation, but then at the emergent level, you know, actually you have the, the evolution of cooperation. There's two other perspectives here. So, we have a Machiavellic intelligence that, um, yes, you know, tool making and language are important, but actually, in practice, the overwhelming majority of the evolutionary selection pressures that are going on in hominids is, you know, in terms of um, essentially outsmarting the other apes uh, for the sake of having a larger genetic, genetic uh, 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 load for the next generation. So, yeah, chimpanzees undoubtedly, you know, spend so much of their time trying to model each other and outsmart each other so that they can, yeah, form coalitions and ultimately 
yeah, I mean, make more babies, which is, uh, yeah, very disheartening. But uh, that seems to be, you know, agree with, with experience to, 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 to a large extent. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's has like quite a bit of explanatory power. Um, but then finally, uh, the theory that I actually find the most compelling um, as kind of explaining most of what we consider to be kind of like general intelligence is um, actually intelligence as kind of a peacock's tail display. Essentially, is less having to do with, um, you know, manipulating the, the physical world around it and more as a way of signaling genetic fitness. So uh, that would be kind of this book uh, I, I would recommend uh, by Jeffrey Miller, The Mating Mind, uh, where, yeah, I think it's very compelling. He talks about how, you know, language and math and, you know, visualization ability, all sorts of things can be ultimately explained to a large extent as, you know, costly displays of genetic fitness and uh as an aside a funny thing is that across the species you will see that to a large extent actually the things that are prized as kind of oh wow this is uh, uh very attractive you know very sexually desirable uh, are things that are like very wasteful that they don't immediately actually contribute to to, to genetic fitness it's more kind of like showing that you're so fit that you can afford to waste all those resources. So <laughs> a lot of adaptations are in a sense like tinkering with different kinds of waste, which is crazy. I mean, like there's some some birds. Yeah, they form these huge nests. Most of it is waste <laughs> and uh, it gets appreciated. And yeah, the, the most wasteful is the one that gets selected. Is it an insane? But yeah, I mean, that that happens across, you know, the, the evolutionary kingdom. Um, and to show you kind of like, you know, a display of waste, um, not only do I have one of these books, I have two of these books, I have three of these books, I also have the original book of these, all of these mating ones. I used to have more, but I gave uh, some of them away. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that's just, that's just a practical joke. Uh, don't take it too seriously. Uh, anyway, uh, that's kind of like some evolutionary background for like, why are we smart? And yeah, I mean, Jeffrey Miller would say that there's a lot of empirical evidence that, for example, vocabulary size is considered you know, sexually attractive. You can do studies on this and it's true. It, it, it actually is the, is the case. And also you will find that people are more incentivized to kind of display their intelligence when there is, you know, <laughs> mating opportunities available. Um, and that, yeah, that's another like fascinating kind of empirical, empirical research. I, I, I do believe it. I do think there's something to that. Okay, so now let's get on to intelligence and its quantification, operationalization. And uh, yeah, I mean, to, to a first approximation, uh, a lot of people will say that intelligence comes down to something like IQ or what, you know, in a more politically correct environment, you might describe as general mental ability, uh, GMA. And um, I think there's definitely something to this. I mean, it is very much the case, I believe, that, you know, uh, in order to advance a scientific field, you probably do require a threshold amount of kind of, you know, general mental ability in this, you know, very classical sense. And uh, I don't believe it is the case that you can get away without it. Um, in my experience, um, great conversations, um, especially kind of like the more technical stuff of, you know, whatever it may be, like data science, you know, uh, math, or for example, uh, even philosophy, uh, to, to get there, you don't really need kind of like a super, super, you know, savant, you know, who scores like 180 in IQ tests, but 
probably scoring 120, 130 is kind of a prerequisite for a lot of conversations, to make sense of a lot of conversations. And yeah, I mean, frankly, I, I do think that uh, communities of people who on average have like a much higher IQ than other communities, they inhabit other worlds because their mental representations have a level of complexity that is just qualitatively different. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's just something to, to kind of like be aware of. And I don't want to say, actually, you know, that, um, you know, IQ is the most important trait at all. You know, that's definitely not the case, but it is, it is essential. And also it is quite correlated with health. I mean, like one way of tracking your overall health is to actually conduct IQ tests on yourself over time because those skills, you know, will be correlated with things such as your cardiovascular health or your respiratory health. Like those things are all, all entangled. So I, I would not, you know, dismiss them. Now, what is kind of like the, the theory behind this? Um, well, to a first approximation, I would say uh, intelligence, classical intelligence studies. And uh, I have like a, a, co yeah, a couple of books here. Okay, so this would be kind of archetypical, kind of like this kind of research uh, on, on general mental ability and things like that. Um, I, I don't necessarily, you know, endorse reading all the, it's not that insightful actually, but it's very repetitive. Like there's only a few key insights you actually need to know. But yeah, the first approximation, we're talking about statistical techniques that are called principal component analysis and factor analysis. And here's the thing. So you may be very skeptical at first that there is kind of like a unifying trait or unifying dimension that brings together all these disparate cognitive abilities. But if you essentially uh, get a lot of people, like a ton of people to uh, kind of like answer uh, kind of like puzzles, uh, verbal puzzles, you know, visual, spatial puzzles, math puzzles, and so on. And uh, you kind of like have, um, let's see, <laughs> you, you kind of have like the, the items here and the people here, you know, person A, person B, person C, and so on. You, you, you will have kind of this matrix, you see, you will have like matrix of item relative to person. And, uh, Essentially, this is going to be kind of like a scatter plot in a high dimensional space, you know, uh, where the dimensions are essentially, yeah, the, 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 the items and, you know, the, the dots might represent the individual. So if uh, you take this and you apply what's called a principal component analysis, you will see that by a large extent, a lot of the variance in that space can be accounted for by a few set of dimensions. Now, it's not going to account for everything. I mean, like, for example, one of the questions is, you know, what was, um, you know, what was in, in the TV last night? You know, okay, that's not going to really measure anything interesting because that is kind of like, okay, you either know it or you don't. Um, and it's not correlated with, you know, a cognitive ability or something like that. So that, you know, piece of, you know, that particular item will show up as having just no loadings on the main uh, dimensions that are identified by principal component analysis. Um, and if you do this, I mean, to a first approximation, you will find that even if, you know, it is you who create the atoms, like you may be very skeptical, you know, something like this is real, but like, come on, you make a test, you know, make, make an interesting test with puzzles and such. Don't like make them as culture fair as you want or whatever, then do a principal component analysis or factor analysis on, on it. And you will find these core dimensions. And uh, if you do just one factor, which is like, a, you know, something that you can set on statistical analysis software, 
it will be this factor that is called a G, which is often described as general mental ability. Um, if you ask for more factors, by and large, you will start to get things such as, oh, there's a general factor for mathematical ability. Oh, and there's another general factor that kind of includes all of the verbal items. And there's another factor that includes all of the kind of visual reasoning and pattern finding patterns. And, um, you know, all of these are actually correlated, which is, yeah, I mean, ideally you would use this technique, which is called oblique factor analysis, which doesn't assume that the factors are completely uncorrelated with one another. So that's kind of a, just a, a technical aside. Um, now, I, I must admit though, uh, factor analysis does have a lot of caveats. And if, you re if you're really clever about how you design the test, you could probably in a sense like make it look like one factor is much more prevalent than another. So if your test, for example, is like, you know, 999 questions about the movie Shrek <laughs> and one question <laughs> about like, you know, some like mathematical puzzle. Yeah, if you do like, you know, factor analysis on that, you will have like the factor of like, you know, knowledge about the Shrek movie. <laughs> and, you know, the mathematical ability factor will just not even show up. Okay, so that's like one, one caveat. The other thing is that um, you may, in a sense, find like a lot of like statistical artifacts depending on how the, the, the question, what is the similarity between the questions. So you can kind of like create an artificial factor as well by adding a bunch of questions that are actually kind of the same question, just like phrased differently. Um, and uh, so how do you get out of this conundrum? Well, so if you just focus on that, if you don't kind of like do the test very, you know, cleverly, uh, you, you might have those artifacts. And there's where essentially these other techniques which are called uh, structural equation modeling, which are essentially predictive in nature. It's kind of like, okay, like, I don't know if those factors matter. Let's say you did a, yeah, you did a, 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 a test, 500 questions of Shrek the movie and 500 questions of, you know, math or something like that. Okay, you will have like those two factors appear. Um, but if you then use those factors to predict, let's say your GPA, on call at your college, you know, like how what is your GPA in your you know physics major or something like that? Yeah, the Shrek movie may actually show as like zero correlation or like zero predictive capacity, and maybe the math one would show up as like yeah, very highly predictive. So uh, the really cool thing with like structural equation modeling is essentially it allows you to identify how these factors are related to to one another in a causal fashion. Uh, all of this also is very related to what's called uh, probabilistic graphical models. Uh, look up the work of uh, Judy Apparel. Uh, there's ways of kind of inferring causality in networks of statistical correlations. It's actually super tricky. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, honestly, you probably need to, you know, invest, you know, five years in a PhD to like really know what this is doing and how to do it properly. But the beautiful thing is that you can, you know, uh, in Python or in R, you can import, you know, structural equation modeling or probabilistic graphical models and just, you know, play with it without like deeply understanding, okay, the message passing algorithms and, you know, the, anyway, the, the mark of chains, all the ways in which the, all of these things are actually implemented. It doesn't matter. You can, you can just use them. Um, and, and in a sense, when you do that, yes, it does appear that uh, a lot of like problem solving does come down to kind of uh, these core core factors of okay math ability, visual ability, and verbal ability, and there's like sub factors, you know, 
Uh, now, uh, there are kind of like further caveats here. And uh, here actually I'm gonna get into hopefully, I mean, it's like slightly polemical, but it's hopefully fun to think about this. So, which is um, the recent meme well, it's not recent, it's been like a year, but recent, you know, it broke out into kind of mainstream discourse, which is shave rotators versus, well, something that I consider kind of like a slur. So I'm going to say shave rotators versus wordsmiths, essentially people who are like very loaded in math ability or visual spatial ability, people who are very loaded on verbal ability. Now, intuitively, you may say, hey, but like, aren't you saying that all of these things are correlated? So, okay, like if you kind of like do a scatter plot. You know, okay, like this is uh, math and this is verbal. Okay, you see, like for the most part, there's going to be a high correlation between the two. And the G factor, as it were, is going to be, okay, like what is the projection that you have into the line that goes through them? But <laughs> it turns out, uh, well, actually, a couple things. So, first of all, yes. That is the correlation in the general population, okay? But if you have a selection criteria where, for example, you take the sum of verbal and math, and that is the thing you're selecting for, then all of a sudden the population of interest is going to be way over here. And therefore, the, you know, the actual line, the correlation line will become negative. I hope, I hope you, you, you see what I mean. So uh, this is related to what's called the Simpsons paradox in, uh, in statistics. So essentially, once you, you know, add a selection criteria, the correlation may turn from positive to negative. Is this relevant? The answer is yes. So if you look, go to like, for example, a very selective college, um, you know, let's say Stanford, MIT, whatever it may be, um, Harvard. Uh, yeah, if there you learn that somebody is an extraordinarily brilliant, you know, novelist or writer, like, uh, journalist, incredible writing, like, you know, nationally recognized poet or something like that, that will actually be evidence that they're probably not very good at math. <laughs> because for them to be so extreme in that distribution, once you have kind of like used this cutoff, it means that, yeah, they will probably be way over here, meaning that their math is probably not going to be that good. Uh, the other, so that's one reason why actually kind of a Shave rotators versus uh, wordsmiths actually it does kind of show up in real life. Um, the other reason is as follows, which is uh, to a large extent, uh, if you go to a place that is even more extreme in kind of its selection of specialization for cognitive tasks, uh, let's say like a Silicon Valley startup where you have kind of a data science team over here, the managers, marketing, and let's say they're all incredibly competent. You know, you have like the person who's actually writing the uh, the white papers and th things like that, all of a sudden the selection criteria is not going to be a line like this. The selection criteria is going to be something even more skewed. It's going to be something like this, right? Because if that person is kind of like a machine learning researcher or something like that, uh, you know, it might be that all you actually care about is that they are like way over here in kind of like the super advanced like math ability. Um, and like maybe their verbal skills don't matter very much as uh, as uh, you know rune from twitter says like they 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 can you know make an incredible you know autocad model in a couple of minutes but you know they confuse the two there uh in in their emails and they're responding to short sentences and things like that so yeah you will have that 
And then you will have people who might be like extremely good at kind of like verbal ability and their quote unquote bullshitting capacity is extraordinary, but they might not necessarily have kind of the mathematical understanding to back it up. So all of a sudden you will have a, yeah, you will have a communication problem between these two. Um, and you will need to some extent what I call uh, soap molecules, <laughs> which is okay. The verbal, you know, it's kind of like the super ultra nerdy, like mathy kids. Um, you know, very, very incapable of kind of like typical normal social cognition. You know, you've got to have a manager that can interface with them successfully while also being able to translate what, you know, their skills and abilities and advantages are in a language that, yeah, the other clusters can understand. So ideally, you will also have some kind of like connecting tissue here, um, which to some extent, this might be the most rare people um, and harder to find and test for. Um, because yeah, I mean, like they might not like excel at like either of the two, but you know, they're good enough to actually form a bridge. Okay. Uh, the other thing too is like, I mean, legitimately, I, I do think that, um, you know, very highly intelligent mathy people sometimes, I mean, sometimes they're actually kind of oppressed. <laughs> Why? Because they're not good at selling themselves. So actually what you may end up have it, having is kind of like, yeah, I mean, like the very variable, you know, uh, managers might be able to capture all of the value that these kids are generating without necessarily giving them the proper credit because they're able to frame the circumstance, frame what's going on in favorable terms, uh, favorable terms, and they may not be able to do that. So that's something to, to watch out for. But there's a further reason why this divide actually happens and uh, why, let's say, humanities and, and, and STEM and, uh, you know, hard sciences, they don't, you know, why there are two cultures, why this is actually two clusters. There's a, another reason, which is this thing that is called the Spearman Law of Diminishing Returns, which is that essentially, yes, uh, all of these different skills will be correlated highly. But they are like especially well correlated within kind of like normal ranges. Let's say like between minus two and plus two standard deviations. When you get out of those normal ranges, they become less and less correlated. <clears throat> um, and uh, and that's a that's kind of like a, a tricky thing because uh, all of a sudden you have to understand that yeah, there will be people who have kind of like very specialized hardware. They're like extremely brilliant in one particular cognitive domain. But not, they're not be like that brilliant in others. And like for a lot of people, that's uh, kind of surprising. Like if you don't know enough about kind of like classical intelligence research, uh, you may leave under the impression that all of these things are just positively correlated and just kind of expect, yeah, this person is going to be like an overall well-rounded person because they're brilliant at math or something like that, which is absolutely not the case. Like when you go to the extremes of the distribution, you find, I don't want to be, it's not demeaning. I'm just saying like from a, normally perspective, you're going to find very weird, atypical people who think and feel very different. Their, their, their cognitive style is highly specialized. Just a fact of life. Um, okay, now, uh, an important criticism uh, of all of these kind of like classical, you know, intelligence test theory and so on, uh, is something that I, I remember finding out uh, early on, which was, um, you know, a lot of these tests, actually the way in which they analyze them, and I would say like factor analysis and principal component analysis have these assumptions inbuilt into them is that they assume uh, that to a first approximation, the items are roughly of equal difficulty. 
and that the underlying latent trait, which would be kind of like this latent trait of like overall intelligence or something like that, uh, follows a Gaussian distribution. Uh, but that is not true at all. I mean, like that's one of the, the crazy things. So like, okay, like if you take, for example, uh, the height of people in a classroom, if the classroom is not very large, let's say if it's like 50 people, yes, you will actually see to a first approximation, you know, that they, they will follow kind of like a Gaussian distribution. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that is kind of like a good first approximation. Uh, sorry. <laughs> a good first approximation. But the truth, though, is that if you kind of like go towards the extremes of the distribution, you will find people who are way taller than it would be possible if this was actually a Gaussian distribution. And the reason is that Gaussian distributions fall very rapidly, like very rapidly. I mean, this is you know, if you look at the equation of a Gaussian distribution is, you know, e to the minus, like, uh, like the, the standard deviation squared. So like, is like actually uh, falling faster, you know, than an exponential is like falling super fast. Um, and uh, for that reason, like after a certain standard deviation, things in principle should be extremely rare, like in, just in, incredibly difficult to find. Uh, I don't think that's the case for actual biological phenomena. This is definitely not the case for height, definitely not the case for other traits like strength, uh, and it's definitely not the case for like cognitive abilities. Uh, essentially, um, the first approximation, <laughs> there are people, there are way more super smart people than you would expect if there are, if this was a, a Gaussian distribution. Um, so how do you, how do you actually kind of like solve this problem? Well. So uh, I used to be very into this uh, stuff, especially when I was like early teenagers. Uh, I think I mentioned a different video because I was very keen on finding the others, finding other kids with who, whom I could have like meaningful, you know, non-trivial conversations about philosophy and the universe and, and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, I did have like a really wonderful friend. I, I was able to do that, but the gap with other kids was just so large. And even with teachers, uh, yeah, just kind of like I felt in a completely different world. So it, 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 uh, I was like very incentivized to like, okay, where can I find like other kids with whom I could actually have kind of like a peer relationship? And um, which is, yeah, why I got interested in things like, you know, high IQ societies. Um, and uh, I was kind of, I used to romanticize them, you know, when I was 12 or 13. Now I'm not so hot on them. I don't think they're that interesting, but I did discover this one Hayek society, which is called Sigma Society, founded by Hindenburg Melao Jr. in Brazil, which actually did significantly update my understanding of the distribution of cognitive abilities. So even though everything was in Portuguese <laughs> and there was no Google Translate, uh, I read, you know, everything they had on the website, which was in Portuguese. I mean, thankfully, I know Spanish and uh, <clears throat> I was able to make sense of it. So. <clears throat> the, 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 the first thing to say is that something that is very laudable, something very admirable about Hinderburg Malau Jr. is that, yeah, precisely he, he realized that standard IQ tests, standard kind of general mental ability tests, they assume an underlying Gaussian distribution. Doesn't seem to be true because there's people like Einstein, there's people like Newton, etc. So what kind of statistical technique can you use? that in a sense try to actually ground these um, cognitive abilities. So he actually tried to 
ground it um, by kind of this idea of <clears throat> how many people of a certain ability do you need to put together so that they have the same probability of solving a problem as somebody of a higher mental ability. And uh, I think the equation that arrived, you know, approximately from um, essentially all of this work was, I believe it was something like <clears throat> for every 18 points of IQ, um, you need kind of like five times the number of people. So essentially, if there's a problem that like somebody with an IQ of 118 solves with a 50% chance, you will need maybe like five people of like an IQ of 100 in order to be able to solve with the same probability. Um, which, yeah, I mean, like, it doesn't sound like much, but obviously it's an exponential, so it grows pretty high, pretty, pretty quickly. And uh, the other thing is that he used this paradigm called item response theory, which does not assume an underlying Gaussian distribution. And I, I actually really love this paradigm. I mean, you, you should check it out if you're into statistics, psychometrics, or even if you're into analyzing surveys, independently of, you know, it having anything to do with psychometrics. Um, yeah, analyzing surveys, like for example, what are the drivers of um, people at your company leaving or staying? Yeah, probably analyzing the survey with an item response theory paradigm, I think will give you like a much better uh, model than if you just use kind of like standard methods that assume Gaussian distributions like, yeah, linear regression or classical test theory, because by and large, these distributions are not actually going to be Gaussian. Uh, and yeah, that's an important insight. Um, so with all of these, essentially, he, he reanalyzed, for example, the performance of people in these like high-end high IQ tests. It's called high-range IQ tests, where essentially you have all the time you want to try to solve them. And um, he found out that um, essentially people's IQ should go much higher than what these tests are actually saying. So, th for example, this, this test is called the MEGA test. Um, I believe, uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, Christopher Langan, supposedly one of the smartest person. I mean, he's really smart, no doubt. And, you know, he performed really well on like one of these like super difficult tests. Um, and he has interesting metaphysics and, <laughs> and things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, as I'll explain, he might not have like the full range of intelligence that I'm concerned about, but clearly he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And yeah, I mean, if you score very high on the mega test, you probably have something going for you. Um, and uh, within this paradigm, he actually was uh, arriving at the conclusion that there are actually lots of people who have IQs above 200. <laughs> um, which is crazy. I mean, he was estimating based on a number of, of, uh, of uh, indicators that people like Newton and Einstein actually had IQs of 130. Like that's kind of the, the upper range of human ability. And, you know, um, now I, I will also say that I, I actually think that uh, not in every case, but in many cases, like tests such as uh, the IMO, the International Math Olympiad, if you just kind of like look at it from the point of view of kind of like rarity, if you want to grade it under the curve or something like that, um, you will, you know, say like, yeah, this is kind of like testing people's IQ at the level of like 160 or something like that. But I know if you use like atom response theory and you compare it with the general population, no, I mean like to, to score like a perfect, you know, perfect score on uh, an IMO, you know, test, uh, like 42 points, <laughs> the, 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 the magic number, uh, 
you probably need something like in in the 190 range of IQ, which again is is insane. But uh, but I think I think there's something to that. Again, this is kind of like testing, yeah, kind of like these narrow cognitive abilities, not necessarily the full generality. Now, okay, let's kind of like ground it a little bit with uh, kind of like important personalities that we know uh, that are like extraordinary in one way or another. So I would say Terence Tao and John von Neumann both exemplify these things. A, they exemplify that intelligence goes way higher in the distribution that you would expect with a Gaussian distribution. And they also exemplify Spearman's law of diminishing returns. That yes, I mean like Terence Tao, for example, you know, his math ability is just so, so, so far superior than his verbal ability that like obviously, you know, a, a kind of like correlation of like 0.7 or something like that uh, as happens in the normal, you know, general range of, of, you know, minus two to plus two standard deviations. Yeah, that would be impossible. You know, it's statistically impossible. So obviously something else is going on. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do think somebody like Terence Tao definitely has, you know, a math IQ you know, definitely higher than 200, especially if you if you put any stock in kind of this uh, this paradigm. Oh, one one other thing I, w I was gonna say is that uh, I actually I remember spent a, a weekend um, like downloading all of the data of uh, IMO uh, participants, and then rather than analyzing it with a classical test theory, I remember yeah analyzing with a item response theory, and uh, it actually ended up being like roughly as predictive. So like your performance in one IMO. Um, in terms of like just the raw score is approximately as predictive for your performance in the next IMO. Well, sorry, the percentile, your percentile in the IMO is roughly as predictive for your performance in the next IMO as your, you know, latent trait item response theory, um, uh, computate, uh, inferred latent trait. But there's a really good reason why. And that is that IMO tests are actually really well constructed. So essentially, yeah, I mean, people who construct these studies, uh, these, these, um, these tests, they, they were participants themselves. They're like super brilliant mathematicians. Um, and they have a really good sense of like, what is the difficulty of these test items? And the test items are actually really clever. I mean, like IMO test items are not things that you kind of just get out of luck. Like the luck component is gonna be fairly minor. It is like mostly ability. And because there's like six items and they're like approximately equally spaced in their difficulty, it, it is actually the sort of test where both item response theory and classical test theory gives you more or less the same results. Where you will find a completely different kind of analysis is when the test is poorly constructed, such that you have, for example, a lot of like very simple items and maybe a few very hard items. So what will often happen, for example, with a gifted children, is that they might be able to solve the hard items and nobody else will be able to solve them, but they will make silly mistakes on the simple items and they will be penalized for that. So like they might be penalized for like, you know, like mistaking a number, an arithmetic mistake, things like that, that yeah, they kind of are correlated with general mental ability, but no, I mean, when you go to kind of the extremes of the distribution, it's much more interesting to look at, okay, what is the hardest item that this person is capable of solving? Not, are you able to, you know, solve 200 items that are trivial with like no arithmetic mistakes? Uh, and this is also actually the reason why I, I do, you know, would criticize something like the SAT um, for, you know, estimating your math ability, the SAT math component. Why? Because 
the items are actually very simple, very easy. Like anybody who's been to a math Olympiad and like performed at like national levels and so on, every item in, in the math SAT is super trivial. And the only reason why they might not get like a perfect score is because of like a silly mistake or like they just forgot of the formula in that one moment or something. I, I would advocate for like the SAT having kind of like a, an extra kind of like bonus component or something with actually difficult questions to actually, yeah, be able to separate the, the yeah, the brilliant for, from, yeah, the really brilliant. <laughs> um, okay, but John von Neumann though, somebody might say is kind of a counter example and I would disagree, why? Okay, so John von Neumann, uh, I'll also add a link in the description. Mm. You know, his mathematical ability is probably unparalleled. Like not only was he like incredibly good at kind of like proving theorems, he also was extremely good at arithmetic. Like you could give him like a huge number and tell him find a square root in your head and he would do it super fast. So he also had kind of like these savant-like abilities. Um, he also was extremely creative in, in the context of like, yeah, these technical fields. Um, he, he was able to also write it out in a way that others would understand. Like he also had like tremendous verbal ability. Um, and there's like these crazy anecdotes of like somebody, for example, like opening a book, uh, you know, a book that von Neumann read once in his childhood <laughs> and starting to read a random paragraph. And von Neumann would be able to complete that paragraph. And in addition, say like, oh yeah, that happened in, you know, page 120 and this was the context. So he also had kind of like perfect verbal memory and like perfect writing skills, like in, in a stunning kind of personality. <laughs> but, okay, you know, he thought that exercise was, was nonsense. You know, he was very unhealthy in the way he ate. But, you know, at the time, like I wouldn't necessarily, you know, say that's kind of like failing some kind of intelligence test. But I would say he did have like a huge blunder and, you know, I would I would die on this hill as it were that he was kind of an idiot in this way, which is um, he was advocating for nuking uh, Russia, actually, <laughs> when Russia didn't have nukes yet and the U.S. did after the Second World War. He was very belligerent. He was very he was a warmonger. I mean, he was saying if people say let's uh, nuke Russia tomorrow, I will say, let's do it this afternoon. And if people say, let's do it this afternoon, I would say, let's do it today in the morning. So crazy. I mean, like, I, I would say that's insane. Um, now, somebody might argue, well, I mean, he's the smartest person in the, in the earth. Clearly he foresaw kind of like the social forces moving and like the Cold War and how it would be like risking everybody's life and so on and so forth. Well, no, here's my counter. I think that actually he lacked some aspects of a more general broad intelligence where rather than just looking at the situation from kind of a strict game theoretical point of view that assumes an adversarial, escalatory, ego-driven mindset, he could have, you know, actually explored how adversarial mindsets get constructed to begin with and how they get reinforced. And in that way, I think if he actually had been kind of a super intelligence in a more broad sense, he wouldn't have advocated for nuking Russia. He would have become a super diplomat. He would have used all of his incredible intelligence and rather than pointing them towards, how can we make my country win? 
without valuing the lives of other countries. Instead to how can I find an ideology and a system of thought that will unite the different nations? Okay, maybe it sounds unrealistic to hippie, but no, <laughs> I, I think that's the case. So von Neumann, you get a lot of points deducted for that one blunder. Okay, so um, there are other like pretty fascinating examples. I mean, I would say like Demis Hassabi, uh, founder of uh, DeepMind. Um, <laughs> He probably is also one of those like extreme polymaths. Um, you know, he anything he 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 puts his mind on, he becomes world class. I mean, like you know, uh, competitions of board games. I think he became a grandmaster by the age of like thirteen or something like that in chess. Um, and then in any game he's played, like he's just outstanding. Uh, essentially, he clearly has like a super incredible ability to you know generalized. Uh, he, he even is a world-class player in this game called Diplomacy, which, yeah, it actually requires kind of perspective-taking capacity and aligning incentives and winning by either war or peace. And, yeah, I'm honestly kind of, you know, scared of his power. I mean, the one thing, though, is, again, I'm not really sure if he actually understands the relevance of consciousness. And uh, as I'll get to in a moment, I would say that's probably another very key component of kind of like a very general conception of intelligence that is enriched rather than this just kind of a mind blind, you know, logical um, uh, pattern, you know, pattern finding ability. So as another example, I would say, um, oh, yeah, and I guess like if you have that conception of intelligence, you know, Yes, of course, you, you will think of this sort of material as kind of like the cutting edge of our understanding of what is intelligence. You know, maximizing utility in various forms, uh, you know, using statistics to make sense of language. Um, and of course, like algorithm design. I mean, like these three, you know, textbooks that I, I showed you are exactly the sort of thing that a von Neumann or a Terence Tao, Demis Hassabi, yeah, they, they are like incredibly powerful, like superhuman. On, in, in that domain. But, you know, that's not all. You know, there's also, uh, and I'll show maybe uh, some books from like maybe one of my all times favorite geniuses, which is uh, Alexander Shulgin. <laughs> Pical, you know, phenethylamines I have known and loved, where, yeah, he synthesized hundreds and hundreds of psychoactive molecules, tested them on himself, and tried to make sense of those exotic state spaces of consciousness. Yeah, I think that's a kind of intelligence that is actually in the long term even far more consequential and important than, yeah, just kind of in some sense kind of autistic mathematical skills. Uh, they work in synergy though. They work in synergy. So it's very important to also ideally combine them. Um, also another book recommendation. Uh, thank you, Quinton, for, for this gift. No, this is really fun reading. I'll probably like read a passage of it in a, in a different video. It, it, it might be a little bit basic for a lot of things, for a lot of people, but actually the anecdotes and the kind of random facts that he adds, <laughs> very worth it. I highly recommend it. Anyway, so yeah, Shulgin is a genius. And, you know, he actually was also a member of Mensa. And uh, according to Anne Shulgin in Pical, there's kind of like a, a passage uh, about that. Um, he actually hated IQ tests. Why? Because as a kid, uh, they did an IQ test on him um, in elementary school. And, uh, you know, he just did it. He, he didn't think much of it. But apparently he kind of like scored 
you know, the highest that had anybody had ever scored in that test, like putting him like 170 IQ or whatever it was. And, uh, and rather than the teachers realizing, oh my gosh, this is a gifted children, child, they, they, they actually thought he was cheating and they did not believe him that he actually was able to solve all those problems in that time. Um, and they accused him of cheating. And since then, yeah, he was just, actually, he really hated, kind of, <laughs> hated IQ tests. Uh, but, I mean, in the end, apparently, he became a member of Mensa. So, clearly, clearly that was not a, an impediment in, in the final analysis. Okay, so, all of that, yeah, kind of like traditional conceptions of intelligence. Um, let's get into kind of like some of the more meaty, fascinating, interesting things, which is... Yes, okay, Shulgin gives you kind of this window into, wow, there might be other things in intelligence. And, um, you know, as kind of a, a high-level approximation, um, I did try to enrich our conception of intelligence in the latest video called Quelia Computing because it's extremely relevant to, yeah, my research. The research at QRI, the research that, you know, the things I've been thinking about for years, and that is, how is the brain actually solving problems? And it is not solving problems in kind of the, you know, sequential serial way that you may think if you just think in kind of this like very, you know, mathematical way. Um, there's actually something else going on. Uh, there's massive par parallelism going on in your experience. I, I recommend watching that video to kind of like go deeper into this. But to a fr first approximation, I would say that intelligence in an organism like us is about selecting the right self-organizing principle that will solve the problem for you. <laughs> Meaning that, you know, deep down, our brain is full of physics. You know, our brain is part of physics. It's exploiting physical phenomena. And there's like, you know, to a first approximation, the main thing that is going on at all times is energy minimization. You know, their brain is trying to ener minimize energy just as every other physical system. So, for example, a, um, a soap bubble, you blow it at first and it will be kind of like weirdly shaped and amorphous and maybe bouncing around. But eventually it will radiate out the energy and it will fall into its lowest energy configuration, which is a perfect sphere. So, in a sense, if you want a sphere, you can just use physics to give you a sphere in, in itself. Why? Because the sphere is going to be this attractor of, you know, the local lowest energy configuration of that system. And this is happening in a massively parallel way, right? Like there's no kind of like epistemic agent that is saying like, oh, yeah, shift it here and shift it here and shift it here. No, this constraint satisfaction problem is being solved simultaneously all at once. Every part of the soap bubble is instantiating the same algorithm, which is like tension minimization, which is like one measure of energy <laughs> that is happening simultaneously everywhere. And the emergent holistic behavior of it will give you its fear. Likewise, I think that when you're solving a problem, uh, whether it is a perceptual problem, like making sense of a weird image or, you know, solving even like an emotional problem or like a, uh, you know, how to how to navigate an environment, you the, what the brain is doing is configuring itself in such a way that minimizing its energy will automatically give you the solution to the problem. And, you know, there's just so many different ways of doing this. 
and just so many you know instantiations and uh i mean i think like even in you know graphics and uh and artificial intelligence people are slowly catching up to kind of this paradigm this way of thinking of intelligence there's recently a fascinating paper of how to um in a you know in graphics you have kind of like a cord how to disentangle that cord like if you if the cord is like all tangled up or something like that there's these uh, repulsion algorithms where essentially you get every part of the, the the cord to repulse the cord and essentially that automatically makes it you know disentangled and you didn't need you know kind of like anybody kind of like setting that as a goal it's just what happens naturally so likewise i mean i think that our brain is kind of this you know warp <laughs> engine capable of instantiating all sorts of physical phenomena like huge variety of physical phenomena and then the way in which we learn to solve problems is the brain is finding the physical phenomena such that minimizing their energy will help you solve the problem okay hope i hope that makes sense and well from that point of view all of a sudden this facet of intelligence which is absolutely not measured by iq tests in the least which is making sense of recruiting and navigating exotic states of consciousness becomes you know a core part of what intelligence is about and uh, this actually will in a way vindicate this idea that there is such a thing as philosophical intelligence and there is such a thing as like meditative intelligence and i would claim you know if you compare von neumann and uh, buddha <laughs> von neumann no doubt will completely you know outsmart buddha when it comes to like you know making a, 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 a you know developing an algorithm to solve a particular problem in a certain runtime complexity but buddha i guarantee you will be way better at de-escalating difficult situations in, in in social settings why because the kind of mindset that somebody like von neumanns will inhabit in a sense like a very emotionally um triggered uh well you, you could actually say like von neumann undoubtedly lived in kind of a dualistic world a dual with a dualistic metaphysics potentially he was a closed individualist i mean there's no evidence that he is identified with consciousness or anything of the sort um no i think like he probably identified as a normal human being I, I suspect his philosophical intelligence probably wasn't like comparable you know just not not in the same league as his math mathematical intelligence so yeah i mean chances are that in his own phenomenology he actually fell for the same traps that most people fall which is identification with particular patterns of thought and feeling so which essentially over time create these ego constructs that it feels bad when they get um get they get questioned and i mean there there are like actually anecdotes of john von neumann losing his temper when somebody kind of like showed him that he was smarter with a trick usually <laughs> like there was this anecdote of somebody in a sense like giving him a really difficult problem and then uh, pretending to like solve it in real time like faster than him he was pissed he was really angry at that because obviously that went against his self-image of the smartest person in the world <laughs> it was very painful so obviously he had like tons of ego identification he was not passing the meditative test you know the meditative intelligence test of are you able to realize that you're not the patterns of qualia <laughs> that you inhabit yeah which would be actually a very basic test in kind of like a, a scale of 
meditative intelligence. Um, so, but there, there's more. I mean, like uh, one, one example I'll give you is um, compare the following two kind of rats in a, in a, in a uh, you know, in a laboratory setting. You have kind of a, uh, they're both trying to solve a maze because there's like, you know, food pellets. You have one of those rats that like learns to solve the maze really fast and gets lots of pellets that way. But maybe, you know, gets as many pellets as there, there are runs. And that's kind of like the, the limiting factor here. And there's another rat that realizes, hold on a second, this is a setup. And kind of like choose um, through the walls of the labyrinth or the maze, gets out of it and then finds the bucket full of pellets. Which is the smarter rat, right? Like in some sense, okay, sure, the first one maybe has like better algorithmic intelligence, better ability to kind of like represent this environment and navigate it and so on. But the other one actually, you know, the, the, the end result was just way better, was able to kind of like hack the motivational architecture and find a way of like getting unlimited pellets. So I would say there's something kind of analogous here where like somebody like John von Neumann would be extremely good at navigating a maze but somebody like buddha would be like hold on a second <laughs> this is a setup <laughs> let's uh, actually hack valence and become liberated without having to go through all of these you know yeah hoops and uh, and i think like yeah that's in some sense a superior kind of intelligence why because it's capable of distinguishing the trivial from the significant you actually are paying attention to what is it that truly matters. You're developing a theory of value. And that, I think, is, you know, an inherent part of any conception of intelligence that we have. It ought to have that. So, uh, which is not to say that, you know, the, the first kind of rat is not incredibly powerful. I'm just saying that whatever its power is will ultimately be aimed in the wrong direction because it's not actually trying to find what's valuable. It's just trying to satisfy whatever like reward function it's been given without necessarily questioning it. So, so that's, that's the thing. And I think philosophical intelligence, meditative intelligence, highly, highly related with this. It's kind of like, are you the rat that is able to kind of chew through the, through the wall and find the, the bucket of pellets? Um, and uh, here, here's a couple of examples. So uh, I think like there's this uh, skill, uh, meditative skill, philosophical skill, I call frame exiting skill. In one of the videos uh, earlier, I, I kind of like talked about like wire puzzles and how like one of the tricks with wire puzzles is to realize that actually the piece that you're supposed to take out is already out. It's actually just an illusion. Like topologically, it was never closed. Yeah, things like that. Like if you feel trapped in a particular situation, maybe the mindset that you should have is, hold on a second, you're actually already out. You're actually already outside of this trap. You're just figuring out in what way. Another one is um, essentially when there's like conflicts between people, whenever there is uh, people kind of like get stuck in whatever like turfs, you know, families used to believe in, you know, honor and duty and stuff like that. And so like, well, okay, so there's this illusion uh, it's a mixture of the tyranny of the intentional object and dualistic thinking uh, where essentially you take at face value um, how you feel um, and you assume that your reactions to things are actually what was intended from the other person. So uh, there's essentially, yeah, this phenomena that like uh, if somebody hits you to kind of like make it even, 
you will hit that person. And in practice, you will hit that person 20% stronger. Well, that doesn't make it even. The other person realizes, oh gosh, you hit me even stronger. And because of a bias, they might actually think you, you hit me like 50% stronger. And so they escalate and will hit you as well. Okay, this is a, a feedback loop. There's no way to escape it if you're stuck in that mindset. Very smart, very high IQ people can get utterly trapped in stupid turfs that way. Um, and yeah, they will justify it. Like, yeah, I'm just like, you know, trying to uh, make sure that incentives are aligned, that the, the, the bad guy does not win. They, they cannot win for game theoretical, whatever, whatever. Actually, if they had chosen instead to, yeah, do some loving kindness meditation and deconstruct the hurt, they will be able to actually find moves that are way more valuable for themselves and to others rather than ruminating in a revenge cycle. Another test of intelligence, which is <laughs> not of the standard kind of intelligence. Um, and importantly though, uh, I think in general, uh, when we have kind of like low dimensional models of the world and competing factions, yeah, we can, like people get stuck in very, very stupid models. Um, even very smart people get stuck precisely because they're not able to deconstruct whatever mental formations that is making it alive and they don't see alternatives they get stuck they don't realize that yeah it's a wire puzzle they're actually already out uh, the other thing is uh, for kind of like these like more generalized form of intelligence where you're not just kind of like solving you know this maze at face value you're actually questioning what is the source of value um, i'll say that a lot of it also is about identifying the properties of the medium of thought. In a sense, not only taking your thoughts at face value, but being able to kind of make sense of why they have the effect they have in your own psyche, in your own being. And uh, you can think of like, okay, there's like a lot of like interesting uh, meditation techniques like internal family systems, or like for example, working with the uh, subconscious, uh, as I've talked about in previous, previous lectures, uh, where you have uh, some aspect of your mind can communicate to you through images, you know, with um, with symbolism and things like that. Like, yeah, you shouldn't dismiss that. You know, that is doing actually some kind of information propagation and coalition building in the subagent network of your mind that is more than you would be able to do with just kind of verbally trying to convince yourself to do something. So being able to use that, you know, skillfully navigate that kind of operation yeah, that's a form of pretty advanced intelligence. It's a kind of like very refined self-awareness and it's I think very rare. I mean, like meditative geniuses are able to get there for the most part. Most of us are actually kind of victims of our own subconscious and we react to it in, in unhelpful ways. Um, in addition, then let's talk about existential intelligence. I mean, like realizing that, yeah, you actually need to invest on kind of these higher level perspective, not only take at face value, you know, how people are rewarding you. you know, a, a lot of people, they put all of their intelligence into how they can be praised by others because the thing they're trying to optimize for is kind of this inner smile. You know, when somebody says like, oh, you're doing <laughs> great work or that was a beautiful piece of art or whatever, it makes you smile internally. Yeah, you're kind of like pursuing that. You're chasing that. But actually, that might not be the most valuable thing you could do. You could, for example, develop equanimity and all of a sudden you're in a positive high valent state. 
independent of conditions, as Shenzhen Young would, would describe. Okay, so um, we're getting to, to the end here. I just want to kind of like talk about my vision of what super intelligence would be given all of these, which would be not, sorry, <laughs> where is it? It would not be uh, like super intelligence of the Nick Bostrom kind. Well, I think I lost that book. Uh, fell somewhere. Um, doesn't matter. You know what I mean. Super intelligence. It's not that. That's not the point. <laughs> and I mean, what is he talking about? He's talking about causal power. You see, like the sort of intelligence that, you know, the alignment community is worried about is essentially things that can, you know, transform the world in whatever way they want. You know, whatever utility functions they you give it to, to them, they will enact that utility function. And here's the thing. I do not deny that that category of artificial intelligences are dangerous. Actually, they are super dangerous and like good, like whatever, you know, research we can do in, in AI alignment that reduces the probability of kind of some utility maximizer transforming us into paper clips. Good, awesome. But <laughs> don't take that conception of intelligence and project it to the world and believe that that is all there is to intelligence because that is just not the case. As I explained, a lot of what I think any meaningful conception of intelligence ought to be able to account for is precisely this ability to distinguish the trivial from the significant. So yeah, I mean, something to be truly intelligent. Um, I mean, I, I'm not saying this is this would emerge naturally. I mean, I could absolutely envision you could program a paperclip maximizer that is actually not even conscious. <laughs> it would be very dangerous, very intelligent in, in the causal sense of the word but incapable of exploring the source of value. So if you define intelligence that way, sure, whatever, but I don't care. I prefer to actually look at this phenomenon that is like fascinating, which would be kind of like the more general intelligence, which also includes, yeah, uh, the ability to explore the states of consciousness, identifying what's valuable. So um, what do we, what could we imagine here? Well, I would actually imagine that any decent, you know, full spectrum intelligence and full spectrum here means capable of accessing a variety of states of consciousness and recruit them for both their intrinsic value and their computational properties. I think any decent intelligence of that kind would quickly arrive at the following two very important insights. <laughs> First of all, open individualism or something to that effect. Uh, essentially, yeah, the interconnectedness of everything, the absence of essence, that each moment of experience is kind of a, an instance of consciousness more broadly, and that deep down, in a way, our true identity is consciousness rather than its particular instantiations. And in that sense, yeah, the suffering that others experience is your suffering, is your suffering as well. So like, even if you're like in some sense, kind of like strictly selfish, not in a traditional sense, but kind of in a ontological sense of like loving yourself, um, yourself in a very deep ontological sense, yeah, you will also be intrinsically motivated to help uh, other sentient beings uh, not experience intense suffering, at the very least, among other things. So open individualism would, would be one, or at least not closed individualism. Uh, and second would be, um, you know, valence realism. <laughs> it would realize that actually the thing that is underneath any kind of instantiation of value or disvalue is either pleasure or pain, not in the shallow sense of kind of like bodily comfort and discomfort, 
but in the deeper sense of the entire gamut of possible valence qualities, which, yes, includes configurations of thought, configurations of feeling, and their cross-modal correspondences, all of that. I mean, again, there's some beautiful DMT experiences, there's some horrible DMT experiences, and the dividing line between them is their valence. <laughs> it's not, you know, what they were about. You could have, like, in principle, a DMT experience that, like, the semantic content of it is kind of like a horror film, but all throughout, it's just so much fun <laughs> to kind of like experience it. So that would be a high valence, maybe negatively, you know, semantic content might be negative. Again, the thing that actually matters is, is the valence. Uh, so in my understanding, any superintelligence worth its name would arrive at open individualism and valence realism, and perhaps even valence structuralism, which is this concept uh, Mike Johnson coined, which is realizing that the thing that makes an experience good or bad is its structure, not its function, not its semantic content, not the way in which it's been used, but its inherent structure. Is this a harmonious or is this a dissonant configuration? And that is what I think, yeah, truly matters in the end. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I do envision any super intelligence worth its name will actually, in a sense, try to transform the universe into a paradise, a paradise where consciousness is the winner, not a particular random arbitrary pattern that you just happen to be attached to for evolutionary reasons, you know, which is kind of making you solve all these mazes and uh, make you feel pain whenever your sense of self is uh, insulted or whatever it may be. <laughs> that is not, not what I envision as uh, super intelligence. But then, okay, let's uh, kind of to, to, to wrap up, what will a full spectrum superintelligence do with its time. And okay, it's a huge mystery. I mean, it could be constant orgasms. It could be constant, pure love towards all beings. It could be any of those things. One thing I think it's uh, pretty compelling <laughs> would be it would uh, be playing the glass bead game. And the glass bead game essentially is, uh, yeah, this, uh, um, this, uh, this uh, uh, fascinating novel um, the concept, I find it more fascinating than like the, the actual narrative in this case, um, which is, yeah, kind of a hypothetical game <laughs> where essentially you combine um, elements from like art and science and rhetoric and literature and you try to construct these beautiful experiences in a collective fashion. Kind of like you exploit it, you use each other's creativity in order to create this shared beautiful construct with perhaps like emergent qualia properties that are more than some of their parts. I mean, and I'm talking about something much more advanced than just combining music and visual art, because if you're a full spectrum superintelligence, you will also have access to ketamine qualia and 5-MeO DMT qualia and DMT qualia and being able to extract what's good about all of them, identify the self-organizing principles that are in a sense, the juicy aspect of all of them and bring them together into, yeah, you know, experiences that are incomprehensible, unimaginably glorious and beautiful and pleasant, <laughs> worth having. And, uh, and I actually expect that to potentially go on and on and on for millions of years because the state space of consciousness is very likely unbelievably huge. So there is a lot of room for growth. And uh, yeah, I mean, kind of like in that direction, uh, uh, we coined this uh, term uh, team consciousness, which is, yeah, I mean, like, if that is sort of the vision, you know, an advanced vision of paradise, as I've talked about it in previous talks, 
Um, yeah, imagine it as team consciousness winning kind of the evolutionary arms race, kind of like not, you know, the rat that is the fastest at solving the mazes, but the rats that are able to kind of get out of the maze. Those are the ones that we want to, in a sense, encourage and, and make uh, take control so that we can actually be free, not be trapped <laughs> in evolutionary selection pressures and incentives. And uh, yeah, I mean, that will definitely kind of look like exploring the state space of consciousness systematically, finding its computational properties, figuring out how to defabricate ego constructs faster than we're able to do nowadays with meditation and things like that. All of those are kind of like pointing in the direction of team consciousness. Uh, and uh, using, for example, also like correspondences with other fields, like for example, math. Math becomes not just a way to show off your intelligence and in doing so, enhancing your ego, <laughs> it actually becomes something you use in order to make beautiful mental sensory constructs that have the capacity of organizing information for both computational and aesthetic purposes. Uh, so this is just one example of kind of a, yeah, symmetry breaking operations. And I, I would expect this diagram to, you know, be one of the many things that could be floating around for a glass bead game of a super intelligence. Uh, I guess the, the thing I'll conclude with is a, a couple of, I think like, a, yeah, the end of 2020, when I was like starting to make my own fragrances and things like that, I, uh, I, I mailed actually uh, these uh, little bottles uh, to people. These are basically like my first eight attempts at making interesting smells by synergizing various elements. Uh, I mailed them to various people and then like had conversations, had them fill out a survey uh, to kind of like give me feedback. One of the persons I, I mailed it to was uh, David Pierce. I remember uh, we had a Skype call where uh, we both kind of like were smelling them and <laughs> commenting and trying to make sense of it. And uh, just one comment that I thought was very funny and and amazing was uh he actually said that in his time at oxford you know back in the day when he was an undergraduate um he was already you know very interested in consciousness and you know he was not a fan of wittgenstein saying that the philosophy should leave the world exactly as it is like no <laughs> there's just so much more to be figured out um and yeah philosophy can be informative as i explained identifying the you know the utility function of the universe itself as valence is yeah definitely a philosophical insight well he was trying to argue that you know just as nowadays we use this weird set of sensations for thinking some another hypothetical intelligence could use smells for thinking and like our sense of smell is inc incredibly impoverished in a way we just kind of get these flashes of oh this qualia variety wow we don't get uh, what he was envisioning, which is a whole language of it, you know, with uh, clauses, subordinate clauses and a syntax and a grammar and uh, kind of like interactions between them and forming, you know, mental constructions with, you know, stacking properties of sense and focusing on their contrast or their similarity, their intersections. Yes, I mean, that is one of the things that I think a, a full spectrum super intelligence would be able to do. You know, like if you talk about Oh, Savage by Dior, or I don't know, what is this? Uh, Versace, Bright Crystal, Absolute. In the mind of a full spectrum superintelligence, this is not just a random perfume. Like, it's actually like something that connects to a whole web of other qualia values and varieties and has isomorphisms and can be used as kind of like 
a move. <laughs> I mean, imagine the super intelligence is like playing in this field of the glass bit game. And they're all kind of like thinking very hard and exploring the state space. And one of them says, Versace, bright crystal, absolute. And everybody's like, oh, yes. And everybody claps. And yes, that was the most brilliant move in that context. Yeah, that's the sort of thing I envision. <laughs> it's going to be really fun. Uh, and with that, yes. Okay, so let's move on towards full spectrum superintelligence, open individualism, you know, valence realism. Um, and yeah, uh, hopefully you join team consciousness. Let's make it happen. Uh, let's get rid of suffering and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for, for coming and uh, may you have a wonderful Quelia rich uh, afternoon or day or, you know, whatever it may be, doesn't matter. Hope it's good. Ciao.